From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. We've got a show chock-a-block with the biggest stories in the industry from the past week, including the return of deposit-free mortgages, um, an interesting new offering from a UK building society. But we talk through whether we think this is a really great thing or if there are challenges or other areas of the home buying space that need to be focused on instead. Apple reaches $1 billion in deposits in a week. Um, some really impressive numbers, but we kind of really dig into that to kind of understand like how impressive is this and, and what does this tell us about Apple's wider strategy in the financial services space. And Eurovision insurance claims revealed. Um, we dig into some of our music-related mishaps and also talk about European fintech contests. We'll get into all this and much more on today's show, so let's crack on. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. <music> Hello, lovely listeners. We just wanted to let you know that Global Processing Services, otherwise known as GPS, the payments platform trusted by the leading issuers to process billions of transactions a year, have changed their name to Thread. Why Thread? Well, Thread because their tailored payment processing solutions are the thread that connects payments innovators of the future. Thread because they are a true partner becoming part of the fabric of your business as it grows. And Thread because, well, it just feels right. Find out more at thread.com. That's T-H-R-E-D-D.com. Thread, weaving payments magic. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider. Watching Insider, 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Welcome to episode 738 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some brilliant guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, it's my 11FS colleague, Ross Gallagher Ventures lead. Hey, Ross, great to, great to catch up. Um, what's, what's going on in your world right now? What's in the pipeline that you're excited by? Hey, Kate. Yeah, look, great to be here. Great to be here with you. And I guess um, I think I've got lots going on. I mean, lots of really great opportunities, partnering with sort of top clients to deliver what are really sort of ambitious new ventures. So everything from sort of building new digital banks in the Middle East to sort of rethinking financial well-being and security here in the UK. So yeah, lots of really exciting stuff. Awesome. Well, yeah, looking forward to seeing what, what happens next. We also have a Fintech Insider debut for Uvashi Baruha, principal at Redpoint Ventures. Welcome to the show, Uvashi. Um, what can you tell us about you and Redpoint Ventures, please? Kate and Ross, thank you so much for having me. I am excited to make my debut on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, my name's Urvashi. I am part of the early stage team at Redpoint. Maybe I'll kick it off in an introduction on Redpoint for folks that don't know about us. We are... Uh, VC fund that's based in the Bay Area in the US. Uh, we've been around for about 25 years now. Over the years, we've invested in companies like Stripe, Twilio, Snowflake, HashiCorp, Nubank, et cetera. So a mix of sectors, including a lot of fintech. We invest across both uh, consumer and enterprise and both early and growth stages. So I'm a part of the early stage team at Redpoint. And uh, we're currently investing out of our ninth fund. 
we make, uh, which is a $650 million fund, and we make seed to Series A investments out of that. So I joined a team about three years ago and spent a lot of my time on fintech and vertical SaaS, among other things. Um, and before Redpoint, I w- used to be a consultant at Boston Consulting Group. I was working in Fortune 500 companies with mainly financial institutions like banks, credit card companies, lending companies, helping them on growth, M&A, product, pricing, et cetera. So I got to see the spectrum of how really, really large companies tackle financial services to now helping smaller companies and startups try to take over those companies. Well, yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic mix. So already very excited to, to pick your brains about the stories that we've got this week. So thank you very much for joining us. And finally, we have another FinTech Insider debut for Darwin Wang, Head of Partnerships at Tunes. Thanks for joining us, Darwin. Can you give the listeners an introduction to you and, and your business, please? Sure. Thanks for having me as well. Big fan of the podcast. So delighted I can contribute here as well. Uh, so quick background on myself. So I've spent my entire career in financial services, um, particularly around early stage of my career as an advisor with the likes of JP Morgan and my partner on advising private funds and large payments businesses on M&A and growth related strategies, which led me to my current home, Tunes, um, where I had the privilege to act in multiple capacities. So as head of strategy M&A until more recently, head of commercial partners, partnerships for, for the organization more broadly. Now, more interestingly, what does Tunes do, right? So Tunes is the biggest cross-border payments infrastructure that's out there in the market that allows regulated and non-regulated institutions and their customers to accept, pay, and settle funds in the currency of their choice from anywhere in the world instantly. Awesome. I mean, just a crazy, crazy interesting space. And I'm sure there's like tons and tons of problems that you guys kind of touch through that network. So again, really excited to to get your perspective and thank you for, for joining us. Well, with that, let's get into the news. As always, like tons for us to cover. And our first story comes from the BBC. Um, that is that Skipton are launching a deposit-free mortgage aimed at renters. A deposit-free mortgage specifically aimed at people currently renting has been launched by a UK building society. Skipton Building Society says the deal requires 12 months of on-time rental payments and a good credit history, but does not need a guarantor. With an interest rate of 5.49%, this option is more expensive than the average five-year fixed-term mortgage of 5% in the UK at the moment. Currently, there are 1515 other zero-deposit products on the UK market, according to financial data firm MoneyFacts, accounting for just under 0.3% of mortgages available. Um, Ross, this story has been covered in, in lots of places and, and seems to be kind of sparking like very big opinion and getting some people like either very excited or very angry. Why is this such a, such a talking point, do you think? Yeah, it's a really good question. I guess for me, it goes to the heart of um, what is really a fundamental issue, I guess, I suppose, specifically in the UK, right? I think that's a lack of affordable housing. And of course, look, there's lots of different ways that sort of plays out in terms of sort of inequality and and all, all of those sorts of things, right? And I think if you were to look at it objectively, I think you'd probably agree that the current system for getting on the property ladder is broken for a lot of people, right? And I think in many ways, everything we're seeing at the moment with sort of economic conditions, et cetera, that problem's only getting worse. So something needs to change, right? And this new product, these types of products don't necessarily address the issue around available housing. I think at least it opens up avenues for people that were previously excluded to actually get on the property ladder, right? 
Yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely kind of the the positive spin on it. I guess the reason why some people are getting quite quite nervous is that kind of role that you know, riskier mortgages or something perceived to be riskier mortgages played in the 2008 financial crash. Obviously, those kind of mortgages with a high loan to value were kind of a key part in that. So you know, do you think we risk another financial meltdown on the back of unaffordable mortgages? Obviously, there's quite a lot of uncertainty in the financial services space at the moment anyway. Is this the right time? I Look, I get it, right? And I think there's just you know, risk is a part of issuing credit, right? Like that's just, that's just a fact that we all sort of have to accept. I'm not sure that these products actually are necessarily riskier than a standard mortgage. I think as long as they're structured in a sustainable way, right? I think banks need to sort of build an accurate, holistic view around affordability, right? That's going to be key. You got to do this in the right way. You got to make sure that people aren't taking on more credit that, than they can actually afford. But equally, the flip side is, I think there's likely to be like high quality borrowers, right, that are being locked out right now because they can't afford a deposit. Now, if you can expand access and if you can do that in the right way, actually, that could have a huge positive impact economically, right? I, I think on the, the other side of that coin, though, the other point for me is like, how do you engage with customers that do get into financial difficulty, right? It happens. It happens whether you could afford a deposit or you couldn't afford a deposit, right? How do you pick up maybe on the warning signs ahead of time and actually proactively reach out to customers, work with them to help resolve the situation? You know, I think if you look at people like Oak North, for me, they're a real standard bearer in this space, right? They manage defaults, they work with clients, they they paint a picture on an ongoing basis of like their financial health, their financial well-being, they help them through tough periods. So I think there's more that banks can do in that sense. But ultimately, this is about setting things up in the right way, making sure it's sustainable and managing risks in the same way we have to manage risks with all financial and all credit products. For sure. Um, Avashi, what's your take on on this? What did, what did you think when you saw this story? Do you think we might see similar no deposit mortgages taking off in, in the US? I think we did have uh, last year, Bank of America, they introduced a no down payment mortgage for minority communities in the US. I haven't kept up with that program to see what the reception has been. I believe there was backlash at that time from from both these communities, as well as commentators who were afraid of kind of the same risks that that you pointed out, Kate. Um, but in general, the the problem of housing affordability that Ross brought up is very much uh, exists in the US too. Just I think in the in the years leading up to the to the financial crisis there was a uh, a lot of risk taking and then we kind of overcorrected to the point where now a combination of ri- rising house housing prices uh, credit availability is low housing supply itself is low, has made home ownership really unattainable for a lot of people. Just anecdotally, even in SF, I, uh, I'm i in the process of, of looking for a home and I have peers uh, who are in the same process. And it's just even, you know, a, a, uh, a standard two, three bedroom house is is not attainable for a lot of people. It's, it's out of reach. So definitely, I think there is room for more solutions, more creative solutions that, that make uh, housing more affordable. And definitely, um, no down payment mortgages are one of those, but there's others in, that we've seen in, in the startup space, like rent to own, for instance, is is one model that we've seen a lot of, or even fractional ownership is, is another one. So there's creative ways 
that startups have come up with to, to tackle the problem, but definitely homeownership is uh, something needs to change. There, it's it's unattainable today. Yeah, and I suppose for for our listeners that haven't come across it, like those rent to own models that you touched on, could you could you kind of break those down a bit more? Like, what is it you're seeing fintechs do to support that or to kind of make that more accessible? Yeah, so the rent to own model is um, is is simple. So customers basically live as a tenant, so they rent the house and uh, and then they pay an additional fee to have the option of purchasing the house at some point. Uh, and we've seen companies like Divi Homes is probably the most uh, most famous one that has uh, has brought this mo- model to the surface. So that's that's one example. Um, at the same time, a lot of these models have, you know, hidden fees or the cost of actual ownership is not quite clear uh, in, a, some of these mo- in some of these models. Uh, the numbers tend to be complicated. So uh, it's, it's not for everyone, but that's, that's one of the solutions we've seen. The other one that I mentioned, fractional ownership, we've seen a lot of companies that have made it uh, possible for, for a group of people to go in on a house. Um, or buy a house together, and uh, that—that's another thing that's that's making homeownership more more accessible in the U.S. Brilliant, thank you, um, Darway. Like, I'd love to get your take on this as well. Like, you know, we've touched on some of the complexities in this space. Um, you know, Ashley's given us some great overviews of like some of the things that are being tackled by fintechs. But really, do you think this is something that financial services can solve, or is this kind of more about policy? Like, I, I you know. I know that you know, Toons is in many, many markets, but I'm super fascinated by by Singapore, which I think is, is your home market. You know, that's a market where home ownership really doesn't seem to be like such a mega issue. So it feels like it's not necessarily like a global problem. So yeah, I mean, I'd just love to get your take generally. Yeah, sure. So I think in short, across that value chain, right, the intern process from getting a home to actually exchange with a contract and then actually getting the key, there's so many opportunities for disruption. So in short, there's, there's a lot that can be done by financial services providers and other tech providers that can make the process more accessible and therefore create a better model for different parts of the players in the ecosystem to, to offer more affordable housing through creative models, right? But I do think, I do think to a large extent, this is driven by policy. So, so, so housing in Singapore, affordable housing in Singapore indeed is more accessible than the UK, especially when we contrast the UK. But there's there's still an issue. It's 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 not as urgent as the UK market. But the government has spent a lot of money, a lot of time and effort to craft the relevant policies to make sure that certain uh, certain people from certain income can get access to those housing. For example, they've set a cap on uh, a lot of those housings housings to be sold at, at maximum 100 k Singapore dollars. Uh, but even with all all the efforts around putting the right policy, the grants in place. Uh, the demand for housing is still high in Singapore. Um, a because Singapore is an attractive place to to live. The population is, is growing as well, um, and so slowly the the the, the 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 issue is still brewing a little bit. And when you contrast that to the UK, where you know if you put up on scale one to ten, I would say probably the, the effort is more around five out of ten in, in putting intensive policies in place to offer affordable housing. And then when you overlay that with the a longer time scale, then you have mega housing stock um, in the supply issue, right? And and this is the challenge we were saying we're seeing, and this is what Ross talked about as well. Um, and and, and the, the outcome is directly driven by by a policy. So I think that that definitely play play the biggest part. 
um, a, lo- a lot of fintechs in the market um, are doing things to make things better, right? From uh, from underwriting perspective, from more creative uh, lending model, opportunities when that comes to mind for me as well, where they offer um, essentially equity loan, a different flavor um, that helps um, you know, first home buyers in particular to overcome that the biggest hurdle of putting down that deposit and to be able to get access to housing. So across, across that value chain, I think there's still a lot to be, to be played in terms of underwriting, in terms of um, pro- providing the lending in terms of the, even the process of going through the legal process um, and getting the keys and so on. A, a lot still to can, can be done by those providers in the market. Yeah, definitely. Like we're seeing huge amounts of, of progress. And I think we've done a, like a, everyone's done a great job at sort of helping to illustrate like the many, many like complexities and challenges and like the system as a whole. I suppose, Ross, one, other, one element that I think is also important here is like just this is like a really emotional space, right? Like you and I have had lots of conversations outside the podcast about our own like stresses and trials and tribulations about trying to become homeowners, right? So how does how does financial services innovate in like a crazy complex space, which is also like one of the financial moments that just matters the most to customers, right? Like this is one of the biggest financial transactions most people would make in their entire lives. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's those sort, sort of like micro stresses, Right to to sort of Dawei's point that the the process is so archaic of like this is just the actual process of going through and buying a home and so much of it is super manual and you've got to coordinate all of these different stakeholders you almost have to project manage your own home buying journey like it is crazy and it is so frustrating and actually Kate like this is why at Eleven FS we talk about digital being one percent finished right because look at the pandemic and you know suddenly everything was forced to go digital and it took them a little while of scrambling around but pretty quickly they actually managed to sort of digitize a lot of what were super manual processes now I'm not saying that they inched beyond it being one percent finished but I'm just saying if we are more ambitious in terms of the scope of what we want to achieve and the outcomes we want to deliver to customers, actually, we can deliver something innovative and transformative that has positive impact on consumers. You know, we can do that. That is that is within the realm of the possible. But then I guess moving beyond those sort of micro stresses, the sort of macro picture, and going back to your point about this being super emotional, is it's your long-term security, right? It's your family's long-term security. That's that's really what we're talking about. This isn't just about a mortgage. This is about a home. This is about a roof over your family's head. And, you know, you look here in the UK, with that sort of shortage in housing, with what we're seeing around um, interest rates rising as quickly as they are, and sort of um, landlords having to pass that cost on to tenants, we're seeing an absolute spike when it comes to evictions, and particularly sort of Section 21 or sort of no fault evictions where a landlord can just give you notice and it not be for any particular reason. Maybe they need to put up the rent or whatever that is. Now, we've heard from government that actually the Section 21 are going to be banned. We haven't, that hasn't actually come to fruition yet. So being able to actually get on the property ladder, have a little bit more control over that long-term financial security, I think hugely emotional. I can't imagine anything more emotional. Yeah, it's it's a huge topic, um, and I'm sure we could talk about it like for the the entire show. But I'm gonna have to move us on to our next story. If you're looking for more on the problems of home buying and, and kind of ways to fix it, then you can go check out our recent Eleven Fest home buying report. So that's on our on our website at sort of elevenfest.com reports. Home buying got lots of interesting things in there as well. Okay, our next story comes from the fintech finance news, but again, it's been covered in in lots of places. 
Apple attracts nearly $1 billion in deposits within a week of high-yield savings account being launched. Apple's recently launched high-yield savings account has reportedly attracted around $990 million in deposits within its first four days, according to two sources speaking to Forbes. The account, which offers an eye-catching 4.15% annual return, drew nearly $400 million in deposits on its launch day alone. By the end of the first week, approximately 240,000 accounts had been opened. The account is available in partnership with Goldman Sachs Bank and is currently only available in the US. Um, Ross, I'll come to you first on this one. Um, you, were you impressed by this? Is, is one billion, and obviously one billion sounds like a massive number, but in the world of financial services, there's lots and lots of big numbers, right? How significant is this? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, in context, I mean, it depends what you compare it to, right? So the value of deposits in US commercial banks is 17.1 trillion, right? Which makes a billion seem pretty small, but it's a billion in four days. I mean, was I impressed? Absolutely. I mean, was I surprised? Not necessarily. Look, there's a lot here that just sort of works, right? You know, convenience. I mean, everything lives within the wallet app on your phone. The UX is seamless, as you would expect, right? I mean, trust, I think, is another one. Apple's built this incredible brand around sort of protecting users' identity, personal information, all of that sort of stuff, I think, resonates really well. And look, a mega hook, you know, I think that 4.15% is more than you would get on Goldman's own Marcus product, right? So... It's all there. Um, I think the interesting thing for me, and you know, the question that often gets asked is like, is Apple a bank? And actually, I think to me, this speaks more to the fact that people don't want a bank, right? They just want intuitive and intelligent financial services from a brand that they can trust. Yeah. Um, Avashi, is Apple? Is Apple a bank? Uh, <laughs> what's your take? Um, I mean, I think it's an interesting trend that we've seen, which is that um, financial services are moving more and more into companies that are not necessarily financial services companies. And Apple is certainly one of those. Shopify is probably like a canonical example that people give uh, so much. I believe it was 40% last time I checked of Shopify's revenue came from payments and they never started out as a payments company. So I think it's true. Financial services are increasingly moving into the realm of of non-financial services and companies that we already use and know and love. And the biggest thing that Apple has going for it is uh, it's a trusted brand and it's it's distribution. So I, I think I read somewhere recently, Apple, there's about 2 billion iPhone users. Even uh, 1% of that is, you know, 20 million accounts, which is bigger than the biggest neobank that the U.S. has, which Chime, I believe, is at 13 million accounts. So just the reach of a company like Apple is incredible. And when you combine that with this trust that they have established among people, I think it's, it's uh, going to be a formidable financial services player. Yeah, absolutely. And and how concerned are you, the fintechs you're talking to or you know, that you kind of have in your portfolio already? Like, how concerned are they about the rise of, of Apple? Obviously, it's only in the US at the moment. So I guess we've got the US as kind of this first market to watch, right? But I'd love to get your perspective on, on sort of how it's shaping the conversation on the ground. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not just fintechs. I think it's all banks and all financial services companies that have to to watch out for for Apple. Um, and the the number one thing that that comes to mind for me is uh, with the rise in fintech infrastructure players, we've seen that it's become easier to launch 
fintech products. And so we've seen an explosion in a number of um, consumer fintech companies that have come up. And, and with that, it's become increasingly harder to differentiate. And so distribution and whether you have a distribution advantage plays a big role in whether you're going to be successful in the early days. And so that has always been the case, but especially now that you have companies like Apple launching financial products. And Apple, by the way, has a way of creating buzz that no one else does, right? When the Apple product came about, my, my friends were all just organically talking about it. Um, so how can startups uh, or how can consumer fintech startups um, think about distribution in a different way, I think is becoming more and more important, uh, especially as companies like Apple come into the field. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, Darwe, what do you think would happen if you, you guys work across the world, right? Like what would happen if you dropped Apple's savings account into other markets globally? Where would it, where would it, where would you be most interested to see it land next? Yeah. I mean, from a consumer perspective, I, I would absolutely love it. Right. So not because it just creates more competition in the market and therefore it's going to offer a lower price potentially to the merchant and therefore it becomes cheaper for the, and the consumer as well, which is generally right. Everyone's talked about it already. Apple just has great and proven execution capability, right? Everything they do just, just seems to be, to be wonderful. Um, and that, that may be biased. So I'm sure they would offer something that would make sense from a consumer's perspective. So I, I do believe if you, if you were to pure judge them on a user journey perspective, they're probably, you'll gain a lot of traction. But working um, with a, a global business, uh, a regulated global business as well, I do appreciate the challenges of fragmented regulation across the world, especially when, when you touch money. I think that will be the, the first biggest hurdle for, for Apple. And I think this is true for a lot of technology providers who are looking to move into this space. I think that the, regula the regulatory hurdle is often overlooked. Um, but in reality, it's always going to be 10 times harder than, than, than what you'd imagined, uh, especially when you want to overlay this across the, the entire world. Um, so that's the first challenge I foresee. The second challenge, um, both, both Ross and Avashi talked about trust. Indeed, it's, it's very important. Um, Alpha is a brand, it's, it's a global brand, but in the US, I think that the trust element probably would re resonate more than a market like, I don't know, let's say Vietnam or Cambodia. Um, in those markets, Apple will still be mostly looked upon as a, a pure tech provider. And if, if they were to off, offer financial services one day, um, not sure how the consumers will feel about that. But there's, there's already certain challenges with having reliance on, on truly regulated financial services provider in market, which they're familiar with already. And then all of a sudden you bring a brand from the US who's supposedly to be only making mobile phones and computers, but now wants your money as well. There's a big gap to, to cover that as well. But um, I think overall, as um, you know, from, from a personal perspective, I, I think they they will always find a way to do a good job like they have done in the past, right? Yeah, I think um, no, I think that's been a great, a great overview. I suppose that was my initial reaction, right? Like you see them rolling out kind of layer upon layer of this new offering within the payments and, and banking space. And you kind of, like my brain is sort of thinking like, like, like why are you not taking, if you're having such success, like why aren't you like rolling this out faster in some of your other markets? Um, but you know, as you've alluded to there, there is just a ton of complexity that sits behind the scenes here that like, that you know, 
we probably have an idea of, but it's probably only kind of within those teams themselves where they kind of really understand like the sheer scale of, of, of what it is they're trying to do and, and kind of the right pace to do that. Ross, do you see this from Apple's perspective as, you know, is this about bringing more people like into Apple's ecosystem? Is this like an acquisition play or is this just about them kind of like driving up the revenue of each of their kind of established user base? I think fundamentally it's about just increasing the stickiness of that Apple ecosystem, right? And delivering just more valuable features and services to users. I think what's um, what's interesting is like, so Dawei was saying about the, the regulatory picture and like that just plays out in so many different ways, right? Like, you know, the, does the Apple card have the same appeal in the UK where the interchange model is just fundamentally different? So I think that's such an interesting point. The other one for me, I think, in terms of like, where do they go from here? There's nothing in what they've done so far that suggests to me that Apple wants to be a bank, that Apple wants to compete with other banks, right? You know, this is this is delivered in partnership with Goldman, for example. But really what I think Apple will do, because Apple understand their users so well, I think they will continue to find ways, whether it's financial services or outside of financial services, just to design and launch products and features that just really resonate with that user base. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Avash, I'd love to get your, I mean, obviously Ross has given us like his his take, but I'd love to get your view on like what you think could be next on on Apple's roadmap. Like I saw when they, when they announced this um, this kind of new offering for the, for the card, they talked about like spend, send and save. So I assume on that basis, it's got to be something that starts with an S, like in order for them to kind of keep this like nice, nicely flowing sentence. But yeah, in all seriousness, like where would you think, where would you be most interested to see them dipping their toes next? Yeah, I'm, I honestly, I'm not sure. It could be any number of products. I, I, one interesting thing I with the four four and a half percent or four point one five percent that they launched is we're at an interesting time now where um, interest rates are going up. Historically, it wouldn't have savings accounts were paying out like less than one percent. It wouldn't have made sense to to switch. But uh, we're at a time now where everyone's looking around and asking, well, how much are you getting from your bank? And well, if Apple is giving me four and a half percent, then uh, why why shouldn't I switch? Why shouldn't I? Uh, and it, and they they made it so easy for you to sign up with just with just your iPhone. So uh, I I think they're going to continue to find uh, other interesting wedges like that. I'm not sure what what comes next, but. Um, I'm sure whatever they'll do, it'll it'll be uh, it'll be to that point that Ross made about uh, keeping the user even more uh, entrenched in the Apple ecosystem. For sure. Um, well, yeah. Let's let's keep our eyes on on Apple as always. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. 
Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a quick note to go check out the latest episode of our Fintech Insider Insights show. Our very own Benjamin Enser and Will Jones are joined by some brilliant guests from Hummingbird and CAF CF to ask, is the future of KYC truly digital? A fantastic discussion on know your customer, know your business and the future of regulation, which, as we touched on today, is just crucial to all the growth in the fintech space generally. So go check that podcast out wherever you got this one. Okay, let's get back into the news. Our next story comes from TechCrunch, and that is that WhatsApp now allows Singapore-based users to pay businesses within the app. After India and Brazil, WhatsApp is launching the ability to pay businesses within a chat in Singapore. WhatsApp has built this payment feature using Stripe Connect and Stripe Checkout solutions, making in-app payments available online and offline. Customers can pay businesses using credit cards, debit cards, or Singapore's PayNow fund transfer system. Meta said the feature to accept payments through WhatsApp is available only to a few businesses at the moment, but it plans to expand the availability to more merchants over the coming months. Um, Darway, as someone in the payment space, you know, working for a company with a big presence in Singapore, I'm hopefully I hope, hope you won't mind if I come to you first, and so I'd love to get your take. You know, how firstly, I suppose just to set the scene for us, like how prevalent is WhatsApp in Singapore? We see all these different platforms having such different uptakes in different parts of the world. Yeah, the, it's extremely prevalent, right? I think depending on uh, what report you, you read, I mean, the, the number in terms of penetration is always eighty percent plus. Uh, and then from just a pure kind of day-to-day interaction with my my colleagues and whenever I go to Singapore, it's, it's clear that this is the, the preferred uh, option for, for for communication, right? So um, highly used. Okay. No, no, that's, that's really helpful to kind of set the scene. Um, and I suppose more generally, like how are small businesses currently sort of making or receiving payments on a day-to-day business, like day-to-day basis, sorry, like what is it that WhatsApp is trying to disrupt here? Yeah, so it's it's probably not going to be too surprising uh, for you. So there's a lot of traditional payment methods like bank transfer, card payments, the debit, debit and credit. Um, being Singapore, there's, there's of course the Grab Pay, uh, which has been developed by by Grab. There's uh, PayNow, which is the essentially the, the faster payment of of Singapore as well. Um, and then there's also a couple of global brands, global p- payment gateways that support the market as well, including Stripe, of course, but also the likes of PayPal as well as another example. So, um, yeah, all, all well-established providers in the market already, right? Yeah, okay. Um, and I suppose, like, you know, what what is it that Stripe slash WhatsApp you know, are competing against here? Like, what what is it that they believe you think they can do differently or offer that's, that's better or improved to customers, I suppose, like, what's broken with the system at the moment would you say yeah there's there's um there's a lot to like about this partnership right if i if i were to think about my my own user journey for for example right i even conclude some some of my my deals on, on whatsapp uh, as as some sort of a verb, a verb or written confirmation right of course in a b2b world i, I can't just make an ask request for a payment via payment link but, but if you if you take that scenario to an sme type of trade uh, it gives you the opportunity to conclude a deal, to close the deal without having to leaving the platform. Uh, every salesperson or every business owner will really appreciate the value in that because any delay in closing is going to be a nightmare for you. So for, for, for those SME merchants, there's a tremendous amount of value in embedding that, that payment into the ecosystem, right? And, and what they're disrupting here 
um, or when they're trying to create, it's, it's nothing new, right? It's essentially, a, it's a combination of various type of technologies or features that's been around for a while. So it's, it's essentially a request to pay a link, which then take you to a checkout page, which then goes through the traditional uh, routing to acquire. So all, all those stuff have been around for, for a long time. It's more about the, in the context it's used, it's just beautiful, right? It, it really kind of p- pushed, stretched all the capabilities to, to its maximum value to enable merchants to generate more more revenue. So it, it, it's, it's more, again, about that understanding the users, uh, understanding the real value add rather than just, you know, try, trying to offer offer something that uh, you think that could, could create frictionless experience, but it really doesn't make sense to the overall user journey. So great, great partnership. Yeah, no, I think um, we, we were chatting on the show last week about teams kind of rolling out payments within, within Microsoft Teams as well. So I think, yeah, definitely a really interesting, a really interesting space. You know, Ross, why, why is WhatsApp, why have WhatsApp and Stripe not launched this product in the US or Europe, do you think? It kind of feels like if it, you know, if, if it works in Singapore, why, why is it not being rolled out here? Yeah, it's because it's a universal problem, isn't it? I mean, payments is just such a sticking point, right? And I think especially for small businesses. Um, I think, you know, the markets where they are live, I think are super interesting, right? India, because, you know, you've got the behavior around making mobile phone payments. That's already really well established, right? Through the incredible success that they've had through the unified payments interface with the UPI network. And I think actually WhatsApp's payment services in India are based on this network, right? Um, I think, to Dowie's point, I think in India, WhatsApp as well is also one of the most popular messaging apps already, right? As I understand it, it's already being used sort of informally by many businesses to sort of like arrange the selling of goods and services. So this feels like a sort of natural extension in that sense. And then Singapore, right? I mean, Dawi's covered this off so well already, but you've got the Pay Now network that's also linked to the UPI network in India. It enables sort of cross-border payments with India and all of that sort of stuff. And I think the regulatory, I think there's been quite a bit of collaboration, right? So you've got the National Payments Corporation of India. I think it's been quite collaborative, right, in working quite closely with Meta to sort of enable the rollout. I think there were some initial sort of hurdles that kind of slowed it down, but they seem to have sort of worked through those. And why isn't it launching in sort of more mature markets? I mean, it's it's speculation, but I wonder if... um, Maybe there's a little bit more distrust of Meta and and, and Meta products. Um, for example, obviously we we talked a lot about trust um, in an Apple context in the previous story. Um, maybe they're just they don't have the same level of saturation from a WhatsApp perspective and how that gets used. And maybe also at the end of the day, these products might be just a little bit less impactful, right? I think if you look at the UK. The payment rails themselves are probably more mature. So you've already got sort of real-time payments enabled and all of that sort of stuff. So I think there's uh there's lots of factors, but the markets that they've they've gone into make sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um Ravashi, like from an investor's perspective, I'm I'm intrigued to kind of get your take on like what do you think the kind of the underlying like business case behind this is for Meta? Like how do you think they're expecting to kind of you know, make money from this and, and kind of add this into the the wider commercials of the business. Yeah, um, I just wanted to add to something that Ross said, which um, one is that I, I think the the trust factor is it uh, regards in with regards to um, why 
Facebook hasn't launched a product like this in the US. I think a lot of this has to come down to different starting points, at least in India, cash was king until uh, until the government came in and made this uh, switch to UPI and um, and really start to push digital payments, everything. And still today, when I when I uh, I I'm actually from India, and when I um, go there, most transactions are still done in cash. That's not the same starting point in the US. Here, most uh, transactions are made on credit card or debit card. And so we already have existing payment rails and it's difficult to get people to adopt something new like WhatsApp payments um, when you're when the starting point is so different. Uh, India seems to have uh, leapfrogged the credit card phase and moved directly from cash to digital payments, which I think is a really good development for them. So that, that to me is another reason why uh, a product like that wouldn't necessarily, I think, be as successful. And I think Facebook's made the right choice in focusing on India and Singapore and, and other countries like that. Um, to your question on what what this means from a business rationale perspective for, for Facebook, I mean, so far, the um, I think it's all about diversification, right? So Facebook's business model is entirely based on ads. Ads are around monetizing engagement. But increasingly, as as they've seen, at least in the U.S., their their engagement numbers have fallen, um, and they've historically managed to 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 keep engagement up through acquisitions. But at, at they're at this point where big acquisitions are going to be really difficult from from for them from an antitrust perspective. So. I think they're looking at ways in which they can, one, diversify their business model, and two, keep the user even more entrenched in the ecosystem. This is similar to what we were discussing with Apple. So um, it's true that in India, WhatsApp is extremely popular. Businesses are all, businesses already conducted on, on WhatsApp, and it makes sense to just add payments, again, to the point we were talking about earlier, embedded at the point of need. Um, so. I think it's it's a diversification play. It's a it's a way to keep their users engaged and in the ecosystem and in Facebook for 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 longer. So, uh, from that perspective, I I think it's a smart move on their part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, as always, like another one for us to keep our eyes. And we did have the question of like, is Meta a fintech now? But sadly, we don't have time for it because we've got to move on to our next story. But I'm sure that will come up again at some point in the future. Okay, our next story comes from Tech.eu. And that is that French fintech Gringo banks 5 million euros to grow its green banking platform in Europe. French fintech startup Gringo is looking to bring climate conscious banking to Europe. The Neobank has raised 5 million euros, part venture capital and part crowdfunding, to fuel a European expansion and develop its offering of personal saving accounts and accounts for sole traders. Founded in 2020, Gringo looks to offer a sustainable approach to banking and finances. The Neobank offers its customers alternative and 100% transparent and ecological bank accounts, which with each payment contribute free of charge to the financing of the depollution of the oceans, the afforestation, or the development of renewable energy. In addition, Gringo has engineered its own carbon calculator for its users to measure and control CO2 emissions linked to their spending. Um Firstly, like in my head, I just say Gringo and I just hear Gringotts and Harry Potter. So apologies in advance if if I stumbled over any of that. Um, back to the serious topic, Ross. Like, do you see sustainability as you know having a focus on sustainability as being enough to bring in potential customers? Oh, I mean, I think that building your brand and your business around a, a clear sense of purpose, it's admirable. It's important, but. 
I almost think it's it's quickly going to become table stakes. I mean, I don't know if there's enough here just in terms of like a meaningful point of difference. And we've seen the likes of Climate shut its virtual doors recently. You know, they had a similarly purposeful mission. But then that said, like the likes of Kogo, which which works with your um, existing current account to show your carbon footprint of your, your spending and it suggests improvements. That's that's doing really well as a sort of a standalone app that, that integrates with your current account. Um, I think the difference for me, though, is I think Kogo offers something useful and actionable. You know, it, it, it suggests tweaks that you could make to your payment to improve your overall carbon footprint. So I think that, for me, I think is the key point of difference. I don't think it's enough to just say, here is your... Um, your carbon footprint across all of your spending. I think you need something actionable that you can take away and actually, uh, you know, put into effect. So I don't know that just the promise of not investing in climate impacting industries in this instance really is enough. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting one. I had a look on on their site myself, and obviously, again, obviously it's focused on on France at the moment. But they do have like an interesting kind of calculator for like you know, who do you bank with currently, how much do you have in savings, and then you can kind of see. Um, I assume theoretically, like you know, the kind of impact that that is having. So, I do think they've got a lot of interesting tools and kind of quirky things around, like just really helping you to kind of understand like the difference between like your status quo versus making that making that switch. But as you say, like, is that just like an interesting thing to go look at? And then you think, oh, well, that's interesting to know. Am I actually going to make a change? Um, whereas we have seen it the likes of Kogo, and I think Twig is also a really interesting example where that kind of idea of like just really helping to make the the circular economy more accessible kind of that stuff that is much more sort of action based um i think we've seen that have huge success as well so yeah lots of like interesting nuances to this space um but actually what, what was your take on the story what do you think of the the green girl offering yeah i mean i i think in general there consumers care about sustainability and increasingly so, especially in the younger generation. And people want to make sustainable choices where possible. But our belief, or at least uh, from what I've seen so far, I don't think people are willing to make compromises to go the green route or or pay, pay a green premium. I think it has to be um, like same, if not better, in terms of quality of service, in terms of the product itself. And, um, and then the sustainability part, and maybe then you're willing to pay a premium for it. So um, I think I think it's generally in the right direction. But I agree with with the points you made in that this is more of a retrospective on what has already happened versus I think a more effective um, way of making change would be inserting yourself either when their purchase decision is about to be made or the consumer is in the shopping process. And I think you mentioned a couple of companies, but we've also seen similar startups that either are plugins, for instance, that show up when you are shopping to to tell you the carbon footprint of the purchase you're about to make um, or or similar products like that, that I think would be more effective in driving behavior change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really excited to see some of those kind of come into market as well and and shake up the space further. Darwin, what about what about you? I'd love to give you your chance to kind of give your take as well. Yeah, sure. So I think the first thing you got to get a core value proposition right, right. So the core value proposition being still a solid financial services offering or banking offering, right. And then the um, the, the, the sustainability angle, it's uh, it can be a real differentiator, and it's doing a lot of great for for the planet as well, right. 
I think at Tunes as well, for example, we're hugely passionate about this topic and we have various campaigns around turning transactions into actions where we would uh, where we would help to plant trees for you know transactions that's being sent throughout throughout our network. So that very much to Ross's point, you gotta you gotta demonstrate action, right? You can't just talk about it, but you gotta show real tangible value in that differentiator. And that does resonate with institutions who are also passionate about it. And then when you strike up a conversation, it's no longer just about um, you know payments. It, it, it's very much payments plus sustainability as well, which makes everyone's life more interesting as well while you know we're doing great stuff for, for the planet as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose, Ross, one element of this that I thought was interesting is you know, these folks aren't as focused on interchange as like the kind of core part of their their kind of business model. If they use their interchange, if I've understood correctly, you know, they redirect interchange into sort of selected nonprofits. And that's kind of, so they've kind of moved from having it as like a revenue driver to more of like a propositional element or something they're using as part of the, the kind of the communication with their customers. So do you think we're seeing, is this just like a, a niche thing that they're doing or is this part of a wider trend in the industry as a whole away from interchanges that kind of key factor in fintech business models no i like i really like what they're doing in terms of the, the rethinking the the interchange model and to your point almost making that part of the the proposition but i suppose i'd, I'd go back to overseas point about the green premium right i mean they're talking about a six dollar uh per month subscription fee and i just don't know that customers are really going to be happy to pay that to 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 sort of to, to sort of get that from the proposition, right? But but one thing I want to, um, I suppose, you know, I, I, I took quite a contrarian position on this story in the beginning. One thing that I do want to say is um, there is something in being really straightforward and upfront with your users about where you are investing money and all of that sort of stuff. And if those are in sort of... Um, climate positive ways um, and have positive social impacts and all of that sort of stuff, you know, you don't really get that from from the big sort of global banks, right? And we saw that whole Richard Curtis, Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie short sort of comedy film a couple of weeks ago where they were sat, it was kind of sad, they were sat on like a therapist couch and it was all sort of building up to the fact that one represented a bank and one represented an oil company. And despite the fact that they were saying that they're green, actually behind the scenes, they were investing in oil and fossil fuels and all of that sort of stuff. So actually, you know, I want to be clear that actually the the nature, the straightforward nature of this and knowing where that sort of money trail goes and that it's going into initiatives, companies, industries that have a positive impact, actually, I think is a really positive thing and really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, we've heard some different opinions across across the panel right so I suppose I'm keen just to just to wrap up this story just to get a quick fire I suppose on like you know, of of the of the panel here who would actually sign up to a property obviously none of us are, are in France at the moment right so we can't but if this was going to land on on your doorstep you know of actually like would you would you sign up to something like this if if it was presented to you tomorrow uh as it is probably no Okay. If I'm being honest, yeah, I think uh, I think the point f- first. I think I mean it's it's difficult to switch these products. I mean financial products are so sticky. It has to be something has to be really really amazing uh, for me to want to switch. Um, and um, I think to to Ross's point, people aren't aren't ready. I'm not sure if I'm ready to start paying six dollars 
for for banking, right? When I'm used to getting it for free, even though the number of hidden fees that that people pay for all sorts of things, like ATM fees or late fees, uh, et cetera, et cetera, is uh, but but still, it's a hidden fee. We do end up paying those fees, but uh, the idea of having to pay six dollars every month uh, to access financial services is, I think, still very very new to me. And and personally, probably the value prop isn't quite there yet. Yeah, fair enough. I think it's generally like a, a big thing to kind of see like whether subscription models as a whole become slightly more acceptable within financial services. Like I remember like when I first joined 11FS and kind of moved into financial services like properly, I was like horrified at some of the fees that you know, people pay in other markets when I'm used in the UK to not paying for my bank account at all. And then you realise, as you say, that there's always hidden fees and things that you're paying for. You're paying for your account, you just don't realise you are. Um so I'm really intrigued to kind of see if like more transparent subscription models where, you know, you pay, but you receive a sort of, you pay, you receive a service and that kind of relationship is clearer. Um, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on that personally. Okay. Now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Ross, I believe you're going to kick us off here. I am. And this one comes from the Financial Times. So the US Securities and Exchange Commission has paid out its largest ever award to a whistleblower, almost $279 million, the regulator announced. The award is more than double the previous record amount of $114 million, which was announced in October 2020. The agency did not name the person who was paid the reward, nor did it say which enforcement actions resulted in the payment a policy designed to protect whistleblowers who want to remain anonymous. The SEC's whistleblower program rewards individuals who provide original information that leads to a successful enforcement action. Awards can range from 10% to 30% of the money collected when the sanctions exceed $1 million. But being a whistleblower doesn't pay everywhere. The UK's Financial Conduct Authority does not currently provide monetary rewards to whistleblowers. Now, we put out a poll on the 11FS LinkedIn page asking, should regulators offer financial rewards to whistleblowers? It's quite resounding. 81% said yes, um, while only 18% said no. So, I mean, I guess this is about putting the right structures and incentives in place to encourage the behaviors we want, rewarding whistleblowers for calling out bad actors. I think done in the right way, this could be really impactful, right? You're always going to get bad actors. They're always going to be creative in how they try to get around the rules, the regulations. So you're going to need creative ways to uh, uncover these types of behaviors. So, uh, I mean, it's an eye-watering amount, um, but definitely an interesting story. Yeah, that buys a lot of pina coladas. Wow. Um Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section of today's show, looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. This one comes from The Independent. Music-related home insurance claims are revealed as European nations gear up for Eurovision. Eurovision Song Contest fans are being reminded to make sure their celebrations hit the right note by avoiding accidental damage. The annual song contest sees nations across Europe, as well as Israel and Australia, randomly, but you know, for, for good reasons behind the scenes, compete in a musical competition with nations voting for a champion. The competition has been running since 1956 and is being hosted in Liverpool this weekend. 
Aviva has said that it's seen various claims related to music events and parties over the years, including some where customers mentioned Eurovision. In one incident, a Eurovision enthusiast became so excited watching the show that their margarita cocktail was sent flying, tipping into their laptop. Aviva has also dealt with general party-related mishaps, including curry dropped in a guitar, an electric piano cracking in half after it was sat on, and drinks being spilled into an amplifier. Oh, fun, fun times. Ross, have you had any music-related mishaps where you've you've damaged prized possessions? Oh, okay, what do you want from me on this story? <laughs> I want, like I want dirt. I want insurance-related dirt. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I just genuinely don't have any. I, I don't know. I mean, I said to, I said to our producer Matt before we started recording that when I read this uh, story on our show, show notes before, I felt like we were scraping the barrel. I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> Darwin, can, can you say, have you got any 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 fun anecdotes of, of mishaps to share with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this one counts really, right? Because it's it's somewhat music related, but it's it's, it's not really a, a concert as, as such, right? So, especially in my younger days when we, when we used to go to Ibiza and go to you know the Ibiza Rocks and all those kind of gigs. Your phone would always be end up, you know, broken or or get stolen or, or lost, and um, and it happens repeatedly t- time and time again. But you, you still carry on going. Um, but yeah, that probably is the extent of, of the mishaps, really. Yeah, Avashi, what about you? Honestly, I guess we're all very boring on this panel because I have never been part of a mishap like this. Sounds like I, I need to be doing music festivals better. Uh, so <laughs> unfortunately, nothing uh, nothing comes to mind. I think my husband lost some like prescription sunglasses in a aggressive dance zone at Glastonbury one year um, and then just had to kind of like not really be able to see anything for the rest of the festival. Um, but yeah. Kate, I'm not I'm not comfortable with how you swear of that by throwing Dan under the bus. That's my general life approach to most things. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Dan. Um, okay, <laughs> um, as per usual, we've got an imaginary imaginary uh, thing for us all to put our heads heads around. So, if we were putting together a Eurovision fintech contest, which also is allowed to include the US, um, because actually it's more international than it seems, which fintech from your home nation would you put forward to be crowned champion? Avashi. Wow. Um, I know we have the hard-hitting questions in this section. Uh, I was going to say Stripe, and then I realized that they're not American. Does that, does that, so I guess it doesn't count. You can, this is a prior question for Ross. Like, Ross, can the US claim Stripe, or were you going to have them for Ireland? I mean, no, 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 no. Okay, yeah. Avashi, you have them. They're yours. It's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. Okay, so who's who's representing Ireland then instead? Hang on, I haven't thought this through at all. Um, who else do we have? You've got loads. I'm gonna, I don't know. I'm. I have we? Yeah, loads there's of great a few, Irish there's a few, but Yeah, but I, I, I don't, one of them is our competitive side. I don't want to bring them to mind. No, it can't <laughs> be those guys. It's funny. Do you know? It's it's actually really bad because I was, I just wasn't thinking. From Ireland at all? I was thinking from the UK. <gasps> that's that's not great. You're Irish, Ross. We're I mean, gonna... I don't want to have to be the person to remind you of this, but you're definitely Irish. <laughs> We're going to get some real hate mail now, aren't we? <laughs> but do you know what? So it's only I think because I was talking about them earlier in the show. So I I 
was thinking about Oak North and I was going to put them forward, obviously given this is like Eurovision and music themed as like Oak Note. <laughs> nice. Nice. Actually, you know what? I'd like to change my answer. I didn't think this there through. There you go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Roz, you can you can have you can have Stripe. Oh, okay, um, let's try. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna have to give a shout out to our portfolio company Ramp um, because they've been doing incredibly mm. well uh, it, over the past couple of years. Uh, we are very very lucky to partner with them, and we are very excited about how they've you know changed the game when it comes to corporate credit cards and really changing the narrative around um, a very simple but effective value proposition around helping companies save money, which has resonated really well. They ship products very, very quickly. And I think all of those things are things that should make you a Eurovision champion. So that's going to be my nomination is Ramp. I think, yeah, if I was, if I was American, I would, I would be behind that. So we had their CEO on a couple of, a couple of shows ago. And yeah, I think echoing all the things you said, I think they're doing some really amazing stuff and delivering it in a really amazing way. Um, Darwe, what about you? Who's, who's getting your vote? Yeah, there's just so many great fintechs out there, right? Um, but, but of course, I have to be biased. And not, not only just because I'm biased, right? So it's, of course, Tunes. But Tunes is a, a Singapore headquartered business, right? But uh, And I'm based in London, right? And so whenever there's competitions or nominations or rec- recognition of any fintech business or great fintech businesses in the UK, Tunes is never considered because the headquarters is in Singapore, but in reality, we have a huge amount of business and clients in the area, right? So that's why I'm, I'm waving the flag for the business in the region as well. Okay, I like it. Patriotic and proud. All good, all good. Um, I think, I suppose when I think of Eurovision, I always say like Eurovision is like colour and flair and like fun and being a bit provocative. So I think for me, probably in the UK, I would probably give my my vote to Habito um, because you know, they've done some some pretty cool advertising campaigns that like jazz up the the London underground uh, and make make commuting more interesting and also you know we've talked about <clears throat> the need for innovation in the in the home buying space and they're obviously a part of that so they get my vote um but yeah good luck to everyone in Eurovision this week looking forward to looking forward to watching okay that wraps up this week's new show thank you so so much to today's guests you've all been brilliant um where can people find out a bit more about you Ross yeah, you can find me at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter. Awesome. Darwin? Uh, my LinkedIn page is, is public uh, to talk about all things FinTech. But if you want to discuss cross-border payments, specific related matters, then it's Darwin.1.com. I thought for many you were going to say if you want to discuss like Eurovision or something, I, was, I don't know why. Yeah, all that too. That, that, that would also work. Yeah. <laughs> cross-border payments plus Eurovision. Uh, and Avashi, what about, what about you? So I'm at Urvishi Burwa on Twitter and um, always looking to speak with foreign founders who are building in fintech or other things. Um, And no matter how early you are, please reach out. I always love to chat. Awesome news. Yeah. Love to see support for those early parts of the the industry. And as for me, um, you can contact me, Kate, at learnfest.com via email or on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, or on Twitter at K8Moody. Thank you so much for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.